Alrighty, welcome back to Curious Combinations and Everything's an Original Podcast. Today I'm going to be covering episode 5 and episode 6 of Dark. And before I get into this, can I just take a minute to gloat? I was right. Mikkel is Michael. Michael is Mikkel. I was right. Maybe it was obvious. But I got it. So there. Anyway, let's get into this. We open on our parallels, Charlotte and her grandfather investigating Vinden's mysterious crimes 33 years apart, Hannah obsessed with Ulrich in both 1986 and 2019, Inez contemplating her son before she adopts him and after he completes suicide, Ulrich and his complex relationship with Hannah over the years, Jonas ignoring Marta's phone call, Marta ignoring her boyfriends, whose name I cannot pronounce. This town and its people are one enormous mess. After the credits, we get confirmation that Yasin, I believe is his name, is indeed missing. Then Charlotte takes the confirmation further. Her attempt to explain to Elizabeth what happened turns into a rather harsh interrogation that really demonstrates how Charlotte is not equipped to meet her daughter's emotional needs, and Peter looks on, but he doesn't stop her. To be honest, what I get from this exchange is that Charlotte doesn't meet his emotional needs either. He confronts her afterwards, but she's no more kind to him than to her daughter. Finally, she bluntly asks her questions of him. Does he have anything to do with the death of the boy, or the disappearance of Eric, Mikkel, or Jason? He, his only answer is to call her crazy, and my interest in him goes down a notch from the gaslighting here. In 1986, young Inez is giving Mikkel a picture book as a present, and once again trying to ferret information out of him. He's still not offering any, which means that sooner or later, he's going to end up in the foster system. In 2019, the mysterious hooded man is staring at his big wall of crazy, and between the mazes and the references we've gotten to Ariadne, we're definitely referencing the Labyrinth of Crete here. So who's the Minotaur? Someone's gotta be the Minotaur, right? Now, the character whose name I can't pronounce, I believe it's pronounced something like Bartos, but I'm struggling. So we're going with Bartos? I might call him Bart, to be honest. In any case, Bart can't get a hold of Marta. But Eric's phone unexpectedly rings. The person on the other end of the call, Noah, knows Bart's name. Which does not concern Bartas as much as it should. He assumes he's talking to Eric's dealer, and that that is the danger here. At Katarina's house, Hannah arrives to deliver sympathy food as a ploy to get invited inside. Ulrich is dodging her calls, and like any good stalker, she simply won't be avoided so easily. When Ulrich does arrive, he's visibly horrified to find his mistress hanging out with his wife, and it's pretty clear to the viewer that Katarina isn't exactly failing to pick up on the subtext here. She's not quite sure, clearly, but she visibly suspects. Katarina voluntells Ulrich to drive Hannah home, and Ulrich gives his wife a very pointed kiss on the forehead right in front of his former lover. The two women hug, and the moment is so subtle that I missed it the first time around. Katarina uses the hug to sniff Hannah and she clearly recognizes Hannah's scent as the scent she caught on Ulrich's clothes in the first episode, when she found the hair. At the hotel, Regina is horrified to see her one and only client, the mysterious hooded man, might be checking out. But he's not leaving. He wants a package delivered to someone while he's away for a few days, and he wants her to hold the room for him. Regina seems rather overdramatically afraid of him, but maybe she's picking up on something that I'm not. At Regina's house, her son is hanging out with Jonas. They're smoking and playing video games and chatting about Marta, which is awkward given that Marta is their shared love interest, which I believe Bartos knows. So one has to ask, why, child? Are you asking Jonas for advice on dating her? He is the last person you should be asking. In any case, Bartos invites Jonas to come with him when he meets up with Eric's dealer, and Jonas agrees to join him, though he ends up not going. Given that the dealer is Noah, that's probably a good idea. Speaking of Noah, we finally get a look at the guy back in 1986. He sits down at Mikkel's bedside, introducing himself as a local Catholic priest, and he has a debate with this child about atheism and creationism, and honestly, I am so proud of Mikkel for holding his own here. 
And honestly, just knowing that Ulrich raised his children to be skeptical lifts my opinion of him at least a notch or two. At Hannah's house, Ulrich and Hannah sit outside in his car. He tells her to leave him alone, and she gives him a genuinely disturbing speech about what she thinks is between them. She's unraveling, and if I didn't think Ulrich was more than a match for her, I'd be worried as hell. And he is incredibly clear. The relationship is done, he doesn't want anything to do with her, and she had better leave his family alone. She gets out of the car, but she also makes something very clear. She plans to make trouble for him. And again, I'm worried. I had no idea before now the hidden depths of madness lurking in Hannah's brain. She seemed so nothing. But this episode reveals her to be a true nightmare of a person. Unforgivably so. In the past, Katerina meets up with Ulrich for a chat and a smoke. They're going to have sex. Safe sex, Katerina makes very clear, given that she doesn't want children now or ever, which worries me, honestly, as he ultimately impregnated her three times in the future. And their romance just seems as passionless here as it does in 2019. So why are they together? Why were they ever together? I really don't see what's between these two. Why are they a couple? In the hospital, Inez is clearly coming to the conclusion that she wants to adopt Mikkel. She lost a baby at some point in her life, and she's very sensitive to Mikkel's personality quirks, and I'm happy for them, honestly. If Mikkel can't get home to 2019, then I guess this is the next best thing. At the police station, Ulrich is chatting with Charlotte about her grandfather, the, quote, drunken pig, as Ulrich calls him. He makes it clear that he joined the police to make up for the mismanaging of his brother's case, except now he can't seem to help Eric Yassen or even his own missing son, and he feels he's mismanaging things as badly as Charlotte's grandfather, who he hated so. Rather than really saying anything to console him, Charlotte instead takes Ulrich's mention of the passing of 33 years to educate him on the lunar calendar. Because the lunar calendar is not the same as the solar calendar, there is a discrepancy between the lunar calendar and the seasons that creates a gap that grows over the course of 33 years. Charlotte seriously overblows the importance of this cycle, making it sound much more cosmic and mystical than it actually is. She's going on about how the universe returns to the exact same position, which is not remotely true. Pluto, for example, is on a 248-year cycle, far longer than the 33-year cycle here. And other planets, also, have cycles much shorter and much longer than 33 years. But given the use of Mikkel's planet mobile in the opening credits, I rather suspect we are doing a very mystical, very nonsensical planetary alignment thing here. I kind of hate that trope. And between it and the introduction of a religious villain in this episode, I must admit that I've been given my first hint of worry that I'm not actually going to enjoy the direction this show is going in. But I'm going to do my best to keep an open mind, not solely because the show has really earned my goodwill thus far. I've been very impressed. I'm really enjoying myself. Everything seems phenomenally well done. And if we do take on themes that I don't enjoy, I'm going to like it less, but I'm still going to give it as much goodwill as I can. I should also note that Charlotte makes mention here of Nietzsche's eternal recurrence or eternal return. Simply put, this is the concept that the universe and everything within it has been and always will recur. It was apparently first proposed in a part of his work called The Greatest Weight in a section reading thus. What if some day or night a demon were to steal after you into your loneliest loneliness and say to you, this life as you now live it and have lived it, you will have to live once more and innumerable times more, and there will be nothing new in it, but every pain and every joy and every thought and sigh and everything unutterably small or great in your life will have to return to you, all in the same succession and sequence. Would you not throw yourself down and gnash your teeth and curse the demon who spoke thus? Or have you once experienced a tremendous moment when you would have answered him, You are a god, and never have I heard anything more divine. It's an interesting concept, Though I will point out that he doesn't actually seem to be seriously proposing it as a fact here, he's just offering a hypothetical scenario for you to puzzle through. 
I fear this may be another one of those Schrodinger's cat kind of things, where the common understanding of a concept is absolutely not what the originator of the idea had in mind. And as a side note, a very silly side note, I am familiar with the phrase eternal return for a single deeply silly reason. There is a Harry Potter fanfiction that I absolutely love that is based upon this concept, and it's titled Eternal Return. I won't spoil it, but it's kind of a horror story, and it's very short, and I'll drop the link to it in the show notes. If you're at all familiar with Harry Potter, I really recommend checking it out. It's... wild. Anyway, enough about other stories, and back to this one. At Michael's grave, Jonas sits alone. He's approached by the mysterious hooded figure, and at this point, I'm very suspicious that the hooded figure, who honestly would be very attractive if he would just do something with his hair, is actually Jonas from the future. Or, given what happens to Jonas at the end of the next episode, maybe he's not from the future at all. Maybe he's the result of Jonas going into the past, just like Mikkel did. In any case, the hooded man tells Jonas that he looks a lot like his father, and that Jonas's father saved his life a long time ago. If this guy is Jonas, and both he and Mikkel are way back in 1986 by the end of the next episode... Oh boy, what does this mean? Whatever it means, we get more Ariadne here. Life is a labyrinth, the mystery man says, and there's only one path, and it leads you ever deeper. All in all, his brief little monologue on life and death and labyrinths is hella ominous, and I find myself on watch for the Minotaur in a very House of Leaves kind of way. At the hospital, Hannah and her father arrive. They have some kind of a business van, maybe a laundry business, and Hannah waits in the car while her father works, obviously sulking over how young and childlike she looks. She sees Mikkel on a bench nearby, opening his present from Inez, and Hannah approaches to demand his attention. She's fishing for compliments, and when she doesn't immediately get them, she starts rambling about magic. This, of course, gives Mikkel the opportunity to open up for perhaps the first time since he arrived in 1986. He shows Hannah a magic trick and delivers a few lines that come across as pretty foundational for the show. Somewhere in the hospital, or nearby, I'm really not sure where they are exactly. Katerina and Ulrich are settling down to have some clandestine teen sex, and in the future, their daughter is playing Ariadne in a play while the mysterious hooded man goes into the caves, and Jonas arrives to watch Marta's performance instead of keeping his promise to Bartos. And oh my god, am I starting to feel bad for that poor boy. Would anyone, anyone, please pay some attention to him? Just someone answer their phone. Still waiting for her father, Hannah spies. She sees Ulrich and Katerina having sex, consensual sex, mind you, though not particularly passionate, and she's clearly angry as all hell. But I absolutely did not anticipate just how angry and how wrathful she was going to be. But in 2019, her son is having his own romantic woes. He comes into Marta's dressing room, and I've got to ask, what kind of play is this? Is this for school? Drama class or drama club? This little girl has her own dressing room with this big vanity and everything, and she's the only person there, and there only seems to be two people in the play, and it's not the type of thing that makes sense for a school to put on anyway, and I'm just lost. Anyway, the kids have their romantic moment, and given what we learn about Mikkel, this kiss is incest, guys. Jonas just pulled a move out of the Jon Snow playbook, and I can only imagine that the Jonas Marta ship is going to end as badly as Jon and Daenerys did. Well, no, okay, maybe not that bad. Elsewhere in Vinden, Bartas meets up with Noah. He gets into Noah's car like a little idiot, and while I don't really subscribe that much to stranger danger as a concept in reality, I still feel like these children should have been told not to get into cars with strangers or follow strangers. Two children so far have gone off with Noah, and stop, teach your children better than this, guys. In this particular moment, just like I needed someone to rescue Elizabeth, and someone to rescue Yasin, and someone to rescue all of these poor children, I need someone to rescue Bartas. I feel bad for the guy now. A quick shot of Charlotte at the police station reveals that Elizabeth gave her a pretty good description of Noah, good enough to make for a pretty accurate sketch. This is Noah. I'm worried. What's he up to? 
At Ulrich's house, he tries to snuggle up to his wife as if nothing's wrong and nothing's changed, but Katarina is not a complete idiot. She asks Ulrich if he's cheating on her, and he is a complete idiot, so he claims that he would never do that. What is even the point of lying here? Your mistress knows your wife, and she lives in town, and she's clearly not ready to give you up. She's unhinged. Maybe you haven't caught on to that, but you should have. And even if you haven't, obviously, Katarina is going to get confirmation of the truth sooner or later. And who knows what will happen then? Because as a flashback to 1986 reveals, Hannah is nuts. Without giving any hints that she's lying, none at all, no signs, she tells both her father and then Charlotte's grandfather, the cop, that Ulrich violently raped Katarina. I could not believe what I was hearing throughout this entire scene. I am so shocked by how fucking evil this little girl turned out to be, and I'm unclear on just how much I should be judging this child version of her. She looks like she's maybe 13 years old, so it's possible that she doesn't really understand what she's doing here. She obviously understands what rape is, and that it's supposedly a crime, more on that in a minute, and that it's taken more seriously the more violent it is. But does she understand that by making this accusation, she could very well be ruining Ulrich's life, or Katarina's life, or even both of their lives? But of course, that's where this plotline kind of stalls for me. Because while we see that Ulrich really was arrested based on Hannah's word, that is something that stretches my willing suspension of disbelief far beyond the breaking point. In reality, there is absolutely zero chance that Hannah's testimony here would result in any kind of legal action being taken against Ulrich. Real rapes almost always get brushed under the rug long before any charges are ever pressed. Many so-called false rape accusations are in fact actually the result of police pressuring or intimidating victims into recanting. And virtually no one actually gets convicted. Not literally no one, mind you. But the convictions are a tiny drop in a vast ocean of rapes that occur every year involving victims and perpetrators of all genders and all ages. There is no chance, in reality, that the police would seriously arrest Ulrich based on Hannah's claim of having seen him rape a girl who was not Hannah herself. Given that the local cop hates Ulrich, he probably would have been arrested if Hannah chose to claim that he raped her. But this is just nonsense. It's also easily disproven. All Katarina has to do is say that this was consensual. Now, I don't know about the interplay of premarital sex and slut-shaming and gender relations circa 1986 in Germany, so maybe it would have been a huge sacrifice for Katarina to clear this up. Maybe she'd be destroying her reputation beyond repair. Maybe she'd face hypothetical consequences so awful that she would be intimidated into never clearing this up, and instead gambling on the fact that if she doesn't testify against him, then surely he won't be convicted. Either way, like I said, this could ruin one or both of their reputations beyond repair, and even if this isn't how it would play out in reality, that Hannah is trying to do this is just fully unhinged. What does she think she is trying to do? What does she hope to accomplish? Is she, at 13 or maybe 14 years old, really trying to pull an if-I-can't-have-you-no-one-else-can? Seriously, how evil is Hannah? And how did I not see this coming? There weren't any warning signs, were there? In 2019, Bartosz gets out of Noah's car unharmed. I'm relieved, but still very worried. In an ambiguous time, the mysterious hooded man exits the cave system. Is he in the past? 1986? Is he in the future? I highly doubt he's in 2019. Jonas, though, is still in 2019, and has just received the package that the mysterious man sent him. There's a light and a Geiger counter and a letter inside, and I'm not sure if this is the exact same letter that Mikkel left for Inez to read, but the contents can be assumed more or less the same. Mikkel explains to his son what happened to him. He traveled through time, got trapped in 1986, and was adopted by Inez, married Hannah, and conceived Jonas. Then he killed himself, and we still don't know why. And I do think it's important to point out here that while we as the viewers know that Michael is telling the truth here, 
Obviously, he really is Mickle. Jonas has no reason to believe this. This letter, first of all, could be a forgery. Even if he recognizes his dad's handwriting, he could convince himself that someone good at copying handwriting is playing a really shitty joke on him. Alternately, Jonas could easily convince himself that this is more evidence of his father's mental illness, or even his own. It's a stretch to say that knowing the date of Mikkel's disappearance before it happened could be mere delusion, and that could be chalked up to tampering or coincidence, but the rest of it could easily be assumed a delusional part of why Michael killed himself. Or maybe Jonas could think that he's having a break from reality. There's explanations. I'm not saying that Jonas would be rational to believe Michael wasn't telling the truth here, I'm just saying that it wouldn't be terribly shocking if Jonas went into denial about this and clung to a rational explanation instead of immediately accepting time travel, and that he'd been friends with the annoying kid brother version of his own dad. But on to the end of the episode. Very unexpectedly, we're now back to the man in the room full of clocks. I still have no idea who he is, but he's clearly important. The man in the hood arrives to talk to him about time, quote, and I can only assume that they're either going to build or maybe repair that steampunkish device. Possibly, perhaps hopefully, it's a time travel device. But why? And how? And who? And huh? These are all good questions, as far as I'm concerned. And I want the answers, sooner rather than later. But now we're on to episode 6. We open with a flashback. It's teenage Regina, tied to a tree in front of a cave. And it's not clear what the exact date of this is, but it is clear that Ulrich and Katerina are playing some kind of a horrible joke on her. She's screaming for help when that weird sound comes out of the caves again, and we find out later in the episode what that sound's all about. And I just feel so bad for this teenage girl. I still don't feel bad for the adult version of her, though, who awakes from a nightmare in 2019, presumably a nightmare of that night, and is comforted by Alexander, aka Power Plant Guy, who I suppose is her husband. I got kind of lost here on the relationship, as he apparently took her last name. In reality, this isn't terribly surprising, but this is fiction. In fiction, a husband taking a wife's last name tends to be the kind of thing that gets made a big deal of. Maybe not in Germany, but definitely in America. That it goes unremarked upon here confused me for a minute, but I did figure it out. At the police station, Charlotte hypes up her force, and we get an ironic cut to the one good clue of what really happened to Mikkel. A photo of him, looking as he did in 2019, dated 1986. If anyone finds it, of course, they're just going to assume that it's Photoshop as part of a cruel practical joke of some kind, or maybe a mind game that the perpetrator is playing with the police. And how absolutely fucked would that be? At Hannah's house, Hannah is busy proving just how little she cared about Michael. She claims she met him at the hospital. She didn't. She met him at the school, though it's understandable if she doesn't remember. It's less understandable that she remembers him having a broken leg at the time. He had injuries on his face and his hand, but as far as I've seen... He's walking around fine. He does not have a broken leg. And so I'm forced to wonder, did Hannah ever care about Mikkel? Or was he just a consolation prize after losing out on Ulrich? Speaking of Ulrich, he's looking into the evidence about his brother's disappearance. He listens to his mother's police interview from 1986, and hears her tell the cops that his father was home with them when the night Mads disappeared. But he knows that's a lie. His father was not there that night. So what are his parents hiding? At his house, Marta and Magnus are going out. Marta is part of a play, and Magnus is fucking around doing who knows what, and Katerina decides to pick a fight. She tries to guilt Marta over living her life instead of wallowing in the helplessness and despair that Katerina feels, and there's a subtle misogyny happening here that might just be inherent to Western mother-daughter relationships, or could be a part of Katerina's character itself. She butts hands with Marta, but not with Magnus. It's Marta, really, who isn't allowed to leave, and it's Marta who gets hit in the face for daring to live a life in defiance of her mother's wishes. As someone who has a mother who is always like this, not because of anything traumatizing immediately happening, but simply for the sake of having complete control. 
This scene feels very familiar to me. And while I feel bad for Marta here, I'm mostly just pissed at Katarina and at Magnus. Honestly, I'd have been entirely on board with Marta hitting her mother back in that moment. If she can dish it out, she sure as shit better be equipped to take it. And seeing Magnus comfort his mother afterward, instead of, you know, the person who was just emotionally and then physically assaulted, well, that's a pretty familiar family dynamic for me and comes across as very painfully real. And given that I already pretty much hate Magnus, this does absolutely nothing to endear him to me, that's for sure. Anyway, at Regina's house, we see her rather clumsily opening a letter, and it's obviously bad news. She definitely has breast cancer, and based on the look on her husband's face when he finds out, I have to wonder if the power plant and or the timey-wimey shenanigans might somehow be responsible. At Jonas's house, Jonas is contemplating the contents of the letter and the package. He pulls out his map, and I feel it's important to remind myself at this point where he got it from, given what happens later. He pulled this letter down from the ceiling in the room where his father killed himself, and it was presumably hidden there by his father. But maybe not. The hooded man left Jonas a note on the map in the middle of the night. Did the hooded man leave the map for him to find? In any case, we're at Ulrich's dad's house. Ulrich is there to confront his father about Mad's disappearance in 1986. I don't know what it is about this scene, or about what this says about me, but this is the first time so far in the show that I've found Ulrich attractive. He's somehow making having a black eye work, which should be impossible, and he's kind of righteously intense as he confronts his father, who I think is shady and definitely up to something awful. And while I don't appreciate the threat of violence here, yeah, Ulrich's kind of doing something for me for the first time in this entire show. I'm not proud of it, but there it is. His mother, though, interrupts his threats towards his dad. She defends his dad, giving the man a fake alibi, though she very soon reveals that she was lying. Ulrich's dad was busy fucking some other woman, that woman being Claudia, Regina's mother, while Mads was being abducted. It's clear that Ulrich sees the parallels here between what he did and what his dad did, and though I don't love the trope of the wayward dad getting punished by his child's death or abduction, I really hope he's ashamed of himself. He really fucking should be. At the hotel, Regina tries to call her husband, presumably to give him the bad news, but she can't bring herself to leave a voicemail. In the woods, Magnus is poking around, looking for Francisca's stash of money. He finds the box, but it's empty. And then he finds the dirty mattress, where one assumes she's earning her money, as hinted by the discarded condom wrappers and the abandoned necklace that he finds. I don't like Francisca at all, but you have to feel bad for her here. She's definitely a child, and this is fucking awful, and it's just more proof that Charlotte's actually a pretty shitty mom. At the school, Bartas finds Marta before her play starts. She's visibly less happy to see him than she was to see Jonas, who, I will remind everyone, is her nephew. Bartas takes the blame for what happened with Mikkel, and while he's not actually all that sympathetic here, I still really feel bad for the kid, because there's no getting around it. This is a child, and something terrible has happened, and he clearly has no idea how to handle everything that's happening right now. His girlfriend's brother is probably dead. It's kind of sort of his fault, and his friends and his girlfriend have all more or less abandoned him. I really don't like him a terrible amount, but I feel awful for him here. Back in the woods, Jonas walks into the caves, and surely that's not going to end well. Back at home, Katerina looks through her husband's phone bill for suspicious calls. She finds them, of course, and when she calls the number, who else answers but the obvious suspect? This is more or less her confirmation that Hannah is indeed her husband's mistress. And again, Katarina seems to have been willfully ignoring the signs here, but she's not a fool. She knows what's happening, and I'm worried about what she and Hannah are going to do next. At the hotel, Ulrich confronts Regina. She was the last person who saw Mads before he went missing, and he clearly thinks she knows something, or that she should know something. He confronts her with the knowledge that his father was fucking her mother, and though she doesn't react much, it does appear that this was news to her. 
She talks about how much she liked Mads, how kind he was, and she notes that she's always wished it was Ulrich who disappeared instead. She even blames Katarina and Ulrich for what happened to him. After they left her tied up in the woods, Mads wouldn't let her walk home alone anymore. Because of the trauma they inflicted upon her, Mads wound up walking alone in the woods after walking her home and was never seen again. It's a very roundabout way of assigning blame, but it's mostly intended to hurt him, and surely it accomplishes that goal, especially given the discovery Ulrich makes at the end of the episode. Ulrich tries to play off what he did to Regina by claiming that they were just kids and that Regina's got a victim complex. And he's not totally wrong on the latter front, though I wouldn't say he's completely right either. Regina comes across to me as someone with complex post-traumatic stress disorder that's either undiagnosed or untreated. She needed therapy 30 years ago, and she desperately needs it now. And then Ulrich drops the bomb of misunderstanding. He thinks that Regina was the one who made the false rape accusation against him in the 1980s. Hannah told him so. Regina clearly thinks that this is hilarious, and she immediately knows what really happened. Hannah, obsessed as she was, and is, accused him of rape and blamed it on Regina to avoid the consequences. Ulrich, to his credit, believes her enough to go check the police records. Sulking in her car, Katarina calls into a radio show to talk about her son and the other disappearances. She claims that there's a murderer in town, and that he could be literally any one of them. It's all very broad church. She calls the town sick, and compares it to a festering wound, and if there really is improperly stored and improperly disposed of nuclear waste beneath the town somewhere, that's pretty telling. It's very dramatic either way, and we don't really get to hear how it goes over with the radio station and the bulk of the listeners. Regina brings it up later, but Regina is hardly impartial. At Regina's house, her husband discovers the results of her cancer screening. He kind of goes blue screen of death here for a minute, in a way that doesn't just read as a husband getting bad news. His expression is somewhere between oh shit and does not compute. And again, I have to wonder if maybe his wife's cancer could somehow be blamed on whatever he's doing, because that's definitely the vibe I got here. At Hannah's house, Ulrich arrives to confront her. He sounds like he's about to break down the door if she doesn't open it, which, frankly, is a good reason for her not to open it, but she does. And he asks her what the hell she's trying to do to him, what she has been trying to do to him since 1986, with his hand around her throat. It's really upsetting, and I'm really worried here that he's going to do something he can't take back. I wouldn't be terribly upset over the loss or the injury of Hannah, true, but that still doesn't mean I want him to strangle her to death or anything like that. I very rarely want women to be strangled to death. That's just me. But Hannah's nuts. She simply tells him that what she wants is him which is so fucking scary that it hurts. Now trying to hurt her with words instead of physical violence, he calls her poisonous and wonders how Michael put up with being married to her for so long. One can only imagine what kind of horrible nonsense is going on inside her head while he confronts her like this, not to mention what she's thinking when he leaves. I'll say it again. I'm really, really worried about what Hannah's going to do. We've already seen her fake a rape accusation without even flinching, and she was only 13 or 14 years old. So what else is she capable of? And is it going to be Ulrich or Katarina or someone else entirely who's going to face her wrath? Back at the play, we see Bartas in the audience, and elsewhere, Jonas follows a familiar red rope through the caves. There's a very interesting thing happening here, I think, with this rope. There's a concept in East Asian media, perhaps Japanese media specifically, but it might also be in other regions and countries' media, I'm not entirely sure, but I associate it most specifically with manga. It is the concept of the red string of fate, and I usually see it in the context of tying lovers together, but I don't think it's limited to that context, and I think it is very meaningful that this thread right here is red. Of course, the show itself is attempting to tie this rope in with the myth of Ariadne and the labyrinth of Crete, but I see the connection. 
and Death of the Author tells us that if you can see it, then it's there. Meanwhile, in the bunker, Peter and Ulrich's dad count down the minutes until Jonas travels through time. How do they get this information, and what other time travel is going to happen in the future? They know, and I want to. While Ulrich broods over his clusterfuck of a life, Katarina arrives at the play to watch their daughter's performance. In the caves, Jonas's version of Ariadne's thread is the Geiger counter the mysterious man sent him, and Jonas follows it, which seems to be the least intelligent thing to do when it comes to a clicking Geiger counter, if I'm being honest. But he follows it, he follows it deeper and deeper, until he comes upon a door. It's a door bearing the Triketra and the inscription Sigmundus Creatus Est. It's very as above, so below. Back at the play, Marta is knocking it out of the park because the emotions she's having in this scene are very real. She's finally breaking down about the loss of her younger brother, and when she ends up sobbing on the stage, her mother runs up to hold her and to comfort her as she cries. It's kind of an unspoken apology, which I can tell you from personal experience is not an apology at all, but I think it's the best we're going to get out of these two. In the caves, in the labyrinth, Jonas opens the door. It unleashes a terrible wind that shuts the door behind him, and the lights begin to flicker all over town as he travels through a tiny, narrow cave that reminds me in equal parts of, like I said, as above, so below, but also House of Leaves. And really, really, truly, deeply, I am begging for the show to lean into the House of Leaves of it all. Give me something unknowable, something unexplained, something powerful and inexplicable and terrifying. That's what I want this cave to be. Give me something beyond our understanding. With the light still flickering, Katarina and Marta are confronted by Regina on their way out of the school. Regina's trash-talking results in a beatdown that I won't say is warranted, but it is kind of understandable. I will, however, say that I think Regina did this kind of accidentally on purpose. She egged Katarina onto this because Regina is a fundamentally self-harming character, and here Katarina's wrath is just another tool that Regina can use to hurt herself more. And who knows how far Katarina would have taken this beating if Magnus had not arrived to stop her. In the tunnel beneath the earth, Jonas finds a fork in the path. He chooses a direction and comes to another identical door. My pet theory is that he chose the fork in the path, taking him to the past, and that if he had made a different decision, he might have gone to the future. Opening the door, though, brings more wind. But closing it behind him stops the flickering of the lights in 2019, and one assumes in 1986 as well. In his car, Ulrich is looking at family photos from his childhood, and he's happy to see his brother, until he spots a photo of Mads wearing a very familiar shirt. It's the shirt that the dead boy was wearing, and Ulrich recognizes it with dawning horror. As Jonas climbs out of the cave into the year 1986, just like his father did before him, Katarina leads her children home. It's a very interesting scene, because given the references we've had to Greek mythology so far, Katarina comes across as an Orpheus stand-in here. Her daughter was just in a play depicting her death scene, and Katarina leads her away, hand in hand, not once looking back at her, and takes her home. Katarina is Orpheus here, and Marta is Eurydice. Later that night, Marta climbs into bed with her brother, which I find uncomfortable, honestly, given that one of her love interests is actually her other brother's son, and they chat about what went down in the school between Katarina and Regina. They're both coming to the same conclusions, though about different people. People, no matter how close they are, never really know each other. In 1986, Jonas finds his uncle's missing persons posters and meets his mother. He essentially runs away from her, which provides the show an opportunity to tell just how shitty her father, Jonas's grandfather, actually is. Jonas is clearly a distressed child wandering around in the rain, and their answer to his rejecting a ride is just, forget about him. Okay, jackass. But back in 2019, Ulrich goes to the morgue to confirm the horrible truth. 
The dead boy, with his eardrums destroyed and his eyes burned from his face, is his missing brother, Mads. It's horrifying, and one can only imagine the emotion going through Ulrich in that moment. From his perspective, none of this makes sense. He doesn't know anything about the time travel happening here, and yet now he's been presented with his dead brother's body, no older than he was in 1986, and yet murdered sometime within the past few days. It's very much impossible, and one presumes that it's this impossibility that's going to be the thing to finally pull Ulrich into the supernatural, or maybe science fiction, goings-on in Vinden. And it's about time. So I really do want to say again, I am loving this show so far. We are starting to introduce a few little tidbits of themes that give me some degree of pause over where we're going with this. I don't enjoy religious themes, and I don't enjoy quasi-religious themes. I don't enjoy new-agey themes in a story. But if we're going to do that, they can be done well. I adored Midnight Mass, and that dealt so heavily in religious themes, because the religious themes were mostly the point of that show, and yet I adored it. So religious themes can be made to work for me. It's just that I have no confidence yet that this show can do those themes well. In any case, I'm going to be watching today episodes 7 and episodes 8. Those titles are going to be Crossroads. Very interesting. Could tie into the fork in the tunnel system that Jonas crawled through. And episode 8, As You Sow, So You Shall Reap. Interesting. That, of course, ties pretty heavily into this idea of cyclical reality that we're playing so heavily with in this show. As You Sow, So You Shall Reap is talking about consequences. And the premise of this show seems to be that our actions, past, present, and future, all inform one another in a very consequential way. But what are the specific consequences that these episode titles are referring to? What is the crossroads specifically, if it's not in the caves? I don't know, and I'm really looking forward to finding out. So now that we're in the back half of this season, I'm really enjoying myself. I'm really looking forward to seeing how the end of the show gets tied up in this first season. Obviously, we have two more seasons after that, but I assume we're going to have some kind of either a conclusion or an interesting cliffhanger in episode 10. So, as we approach that, I'm really interested to see how all of the puzzle pieces slowly begin to slot into place. Where does Jonas go from here? Does he meet up with Mikkel? Does he get to confront his father? Who is the mysterious hooded man? Could that be Jonas? I'm very fascinated to find out. Some of the interpersonal dramas I'm less interested in. I'm not largely interested in Regina's cancer, except that it could tell me something about the power plant. I'm not largely interested in the plot lines with Francisca or Magnus or even Bartas, to be perfectly honest. And I'm a bit reluctant to give Noah my full attention, given the religious themes he seems to be bringing in as the villain. In any case, however, if you would like to see my recorded reactions to any of the episodes that I've covered so far, you're going to want to head over to my Patreon, where for $5 a month, you can see full, unedited, or minimally edited reactions to every episode of Dark that I've seen so far. $5 patrons will also get access to my full-length reaction videos for Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Seasons 1 and Season 2, Umbrella Academy, Season 1 and Season 2, Squid Game, You, Season 1, October Faction, Bly Manor, The Duchess, Midnight Mass, and a series of horror movies, and one or two comedy specials, and plenty more things to come in the future. Also, you may be interested to know that $1 patrons get to vote on what it is that I cover. Every week, I sit down to watch a new season of something. I write out all my scripts for the podcast, and then the next week, I start covering something else. So if you're interested in guiding my journey through stories of all shapes and sizes, 
you're going to want to head over to my Patreon, where for $1 a month, you get access to up to four polls per month, determining what it is that I watch from week to week. The week that I'm recording this, I am, of course, watching Dark Season 1. Hopefully, next week, I will be watching Dark Season 2. And hopefully, the week after that, I will be watching Dark Season 3. But in order to make that happen, you need to head over to Patreon and sign up to vote on the polls. And if you do that, you're going to get to help me choose what it is that I watch when I finally finish Dark. So with all of that said, I have to say again, I'm really, truly loving this show. It's very well done so far. It is beautifully constructed. It's playing with themes that I just adore. It really is. And so with that said, I'm going to go watch the next two episodes and I will be back with my coverage of them very soon.